Hey guys, welcome to Can't Make This Up, a history podcast where we talk to the experts about some of history's most interesting people and events. My name's Kevin, I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Today we are talking about a famous yet unfortunately quite misunderstood disaster from the late 19th century. We're talking about the Chicago Fire of 1871. You've likely heard some version of this story before. Mrs. O'Leary's cow knocked over a lantern and started the Great Chicago Fire. While the Great Fire was a real disaster that occurred in October 1871, we remember it much like a quaint American folktale. To add a little clarity to this famous event, I am joined by Carl Smith, Emeritus Professor of History, English, and American Studies at Northwestern University, to talk about his recent book, Chicago's Great Fire, The Destruction and Resurrection of an Iconic American City. During our time together, Carl and I discuss what made Chicago one of America's largest cities in the 19th century, the status of fire safety in urban areas at the time, the tragic events that unfolded over a three-day period in 1871, and how Chicago's resolve led to the city being resurrected. If you end up enjoying today's episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts, uh, and please consider giving the show a rating or a review. Uh, I won't tell you how to rate or review it, I'll leave that up to you, but uh, those ratings and reviews are much appreciated. I noticed a couple new five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts, so thank you guys very much. I do appreciate that. If you would like to stay in touch uh, with me and the podcast, uh, I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as well, at CMTU History. You can follow along, and I tweet news about the show, uh, upcoming episodes, questions that listeners can submit for future guests, all sorts of things. If you would like to stay in touch with the podcast in another way, consider joining the podcast on Patreon and becoming a supporter for as little as $1 a month. Uh, You can gain access to bonus Q&A with my guests. Uh, For this week's episode, uh, Professor Smith was nice enough to answer the question of to what extent did Chicagoans try to blame somebody or something for the tragedy that occurred with the Great Fire. He had a very interesting response, uh, one that I think uh, definitely resonates with us today. And then a new bonus feature for patrons is uh, I have started releasing episodes uh, a little bit early. Uh, I call it a first listen. So Patreon subscribers get to uh, get access to these episodes before the general public. So if you find yourself chomping at the bit for the next episode, this might be something for you. All right, let's cue up the theme song and then hear from Professor Carl Smith. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools Them stories that are just too crazy to believe The stranger than fiction and super Welcome to Can't Make This Up. Uh, my guest today is Carl Smith. Carl, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you, Kevin? I'm doing quite well. Uh, so you're going to talk to us today about a famous but um, kind of universally um, 
not well understood event, uh, the Great Fire of Chicago. Uh, but if you could start, um, you know, tell us a little bit, who are you and, and what's your background? Hi, I'm a, a now retired professor of uh, American studies, American literature and history at Northwestern University. And I study the 19th century mostly uh, and uh, I've written a number of books about urban history in the 19th century. And my latest one is this book, Chicago's Great Fire, the Destruction and Resurrection of an Iconic American City, which was published a, a few months ago in, in anticipation of the 150th anniversary of the Great Chicago Fire, which will be October 8th. Uh, of this year, 2021. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about Chicago itself. What, what can you tell us about the founding of Chicago and and it's just massive growth in the 19th century? Chicago, yes, is, is just an absolutely remarkable story. One of the emblematic stories of the 19th century, which is why I enjoy studying it so much. Chicago is a creation of the forces that define that's the century, which include westward expansion, immigration, industrialization, the transportation and communications revolution, and of course, urbanization itself. In the 19th century, the United States went from a overwhelmingly rural to an increasingly urban country that we know it is today. And Chicago, was basically a, an obscure frontier outpost in 1830 with maybe 100 people. It had, when it was incorporated as a city, it had be under 5,000 in 1837. Uh, and it was something like uh, 30,000 by 1850 and 300,000 20 years later 1870 and probably about 330,000 the year of the fire, 1871. Uh, it owed its growth to its being a network in this expanding nation at the southwestern tip of the Great Lakes, uh, a kind of gateway city between the agricultural and mining riches of the west and the industrial east, much more populated. So it's uh, as I said, very much a creation of the 19th century. So it's it's one of the biggest cities in the country uh, at the time as it is today. Um, what dangers did fire present to living in one of these large urban areas in the 1800s? Well, uh, there, there, there are plenty of fires, major fires uh, throughout the 19th century in city after city. Uh, New York had two major ones in the 19th century. Uh, the biggest one before the Chicago fire was the Portland fire, 1866, Portland, Maine. Uh, cities are built very heavily out of wood. Uh, Chicago in particular, Chicago was built also very quickly and very sloppily, even um, brick and, and stone buildings had a lot of decorative wood. A lot of uh, basically the, the forests of Wisconsin and Michigan were moved to Chicago in the form of a wooden city, wooden sidewalks, wooden streets, uh, picket fences everywhere, an uh, accident waiting to happen and uh, happen it did. Uh, it 
what made things worse was that the summer of 1871 was exceptionally dry. Uh, there were numerous fires all through the upper Midwest throughout the summer. Chicago had two dozen fires in the week before the Great Chicago Fire, smaller ones. It's a very, very common occurrence in cities, including a, a major one the night before, uh, Saturday night, October 7th, 1871. So realizing that this is a, a problem, you know, most cities employed some kind of fire department. What, you know, what did it look like to be, to be a fireman in, at this time? Right. Chicago not only had a fire department, it had a, um, what we could call now a state-of-the-art fire department. Basically what happens in the 19th century is a movement by the middle of the century uh, or around then from volunteer forces, uh, uh, basically just city volunteers, uh, kind of spirited people who fought fire, sometimes fought each other, to a professional uniformed fire department because of the increased um, uh, threat of fire. But Chicago, by the time of the fire, was state-of-the-art in the sense that all its, steam, all its pumping engines were steam-driven, not hand-driven. Uh, there was a telegraph alarm system that was quite sophisticated. The main problem was it was just wildly understaffed. A city of 330,000 people had maybe 200 active firefighters and even less than that in terms of the Great Chicago Fire because as I mentioned the night before, there was a significant fire that kept the entire department working for about 18 straight hours and disabled about a third of it and broke down a bunch of equipment as well. So the department both in every sense in terms of uh, manpower and in terms of equipment was in a already uh, inadequate and now badly weakened condition. But to be a fireman was basically to work 24 hours a day with days, some days off and sleep in the station. And when an alarm rang to go to the fire, uh, uh, as I said, at this point, a uh, steam engines pulled by horses because they were so heavy uh, and uh, a this fairly good, fairly effective depart department in terms of smaller fires. In the case of the Great Chicago Fire, uh, there was an inexplicable, not only was the department weakened, but there was an inexplicable delay in the alarm system. So the, the, the uh, first engines got to the fire about a half an hour after it started, by which time it was already out of control. It was a small fire, but because of all the pine everywhere and also high winds, it was already just out of control for the department at this time. And the winds were blowing toward the downtown, unfortunately. So can you walk us through the outbreak of that fire? You know, how did it, sure, how did sure. it quickly the, begin to overwhelm the city? Sure. The fire, for those readers, not uh, listeners, not familiar with Chicago, it's divided into basically three sections, a west side, a south side, and the a north side divided by the three branches of the Chicago River. The 
fire broke out sometime, something like 9 a.m., no, I'm sorry, 9 p.m., uh, in, in or around the barn of Irish immigrants, uh, Catherine and Patrick O'Leary in the west side, southwest of the downtown. Uh, and as I said, it was a delay in the reporting of it. So by the time the fire department reached the scene, it was blowing out of control. Uh, there was a strong wind out of the southwest. And what this did, among other things, is it took chunks of fire that were in the air and blew them north and east. Uh, this was compounded by something uh, that are like, like little tornadoes created by the heating of the superheating of, of, of near the ground and the cooler air above rushing down and the pushing. And so the hot air goes up and the cold air goes down and pushed chunks of burning Chicago into the air and the wind blew it north and east. So the fire proceeded north and east, leaped the Chicago River and into the south division from the west division and then leaped right into what was then and is still now the downtown area and burned it completely. It also then leaped over the main branch of the river and burned virtually the entire north division. It burned for over 30 hours. Uh, it, it it, again, one of the largest urban fires in history, uh, comparable to the London fire of 1666, the Moscow fire of 1812, the fires that uh, accompanied the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Uh, from one end to the other, it was about four miles. It was about two thirds of a mile wide. It burned basically a third of Chicago, left 90,000 people instantly homeless, and uh, probably more than that, instantly without work. Uh, just an absolutely major catastrophe. And it's, it's impossible to overstate the terror of dealing with it. I mean, it was hot enough to melt glass, to bend iron, to pulverize stone and cement. Uh, it, 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 uh, at one point, the main chunk of it was a half a mile wide, so, you know, a few thousand degrees hot. Uh, just an extraordinary experience. Uh, and, and in your book, you um, include some pictures of artifacts from the Chicago History Museum. From the right. A, the book has about 70 contemporary illustrations, and it has about seven maps to help people, especially not familiar with Chicago, see it. But among the images are marbles fused together, screws fused together. It bent streetcar tracks into bows and turned them different colors. Uh, it is just absolute, was absolutely extraordinary in, in the intensity of the heat. Uh, buildings burned, people describe it like a piece of paper. They just seem to sort of catch and then go whoo and disappear. So the Chicago Fire Department, as, as they see this thing starting to grow and grow, how do they attempt to, if they can't stop it, at least slow it down? Well, they want to stop it, obviously. The way to do it is to try to get in front of it and, uh, try to prevent its spread. So they try to get north and east of it for the most part, but it is too hot and too big. They try to water things down, but given the wind, given the intensity of the fire, the, 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 when they, the, 
water goes into the air, it just turns into mist very quickly and evaporates very quickly. Uh, they hope that possibly the river, you know, which is, is not a, a major river, but it, it's a few hundred feet wide, will stop it, but it leaps because of the high wind. It, the fire leaped the river twice with no problem whatsoever. One other desperate attempt was to use gunpowder. This is still uh, that to create a fire break. That is, they burn, uh, blow up some buildings in the path of the fire in order to try to stop it. But that was of, of dubious effectiveness. And then any hope of stopping the fire ended entirely around 3 a.m. when the city waterworks caught fire and collapsed. And from then on, it was just the fire burning as, as it wished until it finally burned out early Tuesday morning, about 30 hours after it started. So that really did become the worst case scenario. They didn't have any means to try to fight the fire at that point. No, no, no. I mean, there's all kinds of stories of people trying to wet down their houses or, or do this or that, but they with almost no exceptions, they basically finally said, this is not working and grabbed what they could and ran. So, so what did that evacuation look like? Like you said, there's tens of thousands of people rushing out of the affected area. But I mean, you know, I've been to Chicago and of course it's more built up now, but that's a lot of people to shove through a very small space. Well, exactly. And it's awful. And what makes it work, basically the fire again leaps into the downtown where, and people flee mostly where, you know, where they could, they can't flee into the fire. So they flee mostly North and West. Uh, they fly or to the lakefront because the lake obviously can't burn, but the East side of Chicago is borders Lake Michigan. Uh, so they run, but the street, it's absolute pandemonium because people are not only running, but they're taking, of course, their children and they're taking what valuables they can of sentimental or financial value. And so the streets are full of these people trying to get away, trying to rent carts or whatever, which is very hard to do. In many cases, abandoning the stuff. So the streets are even more crowded and the stuff is flammable so it can burn. And if you're in Chicago, you have to cross rivers and there are bridges to cross and they become tight spots that people get trapped on and they themselves are flammable, the bridges, and all but a few of the ones downtown eventually burn. A number flee through new tunnels, uh, but these the lights are out in them because the gas works has blown up early in the fire. So you're through this crowd in the dark with people panicking rushing, trying to get away in this cramped thing. There are stories of people falling off the bridges of being crushed against the walls of the bridges or the tunnel. It's just an appalling experience. The remarkable thing is that as far as we can gather, and it's very hard to do this precisely, only about 300 people in this enormous city probably perished in the fire, largely because they could see it coming and they could run and uh, they could drop their stuff and they could get away at the very worst case, quite literally to jump in the lake. 
but to go north or west to where there was no longer a built-up area that presumably could burn. Some people finding refuge in the north side in the city cemetery. Uh, yeah, you you share these stories, and and your book is filled with all these um, you know great first person you know accounts and stories. You know, people would get far enough away from the fire, and they're just exhausted, and they catch a couple hours sleep, and then keep going. Right, and they have no food, uh, and it it's it's just awful. Uh, and after months of dry weather. Oddly enough, on Tuesday morning, it started to rain, so they're also wet. You know, obviously, 300 lives lost is uh, a tragedy, and, um, you know, so much of the city has burnt. Um, but, you know, what did, what did the losses look like on, on a personal level? Like, what, what types of things did people lose? Well, as is the case with almost all disasters, poor people suffered more than others uh they they would lose basically all they owned uh that is to say their houses the stuff in them a lot of people fled with mattresses on their backs oddly enough even though that they're both flammable and heavy because that probably the most expensive thing they owned if you were poor you were unlikely to have insurance uh only about half the property in the city was insured and then insurance companies failed and so only about a quarter of the insurance um, was paid. Uh, so you're in pretty bad shape for the most part um, at this point. Uh, of course, after the fire begins to subside, um, the country pretty quickly starts to organize a, a relief effort. Uh, what, what did that look like? Well, you say, of course, but it was quite unexpected and quite extraordinary. There's no government safety net at this point of any kind. Uh, and, uh, and basically no larger, the federal government was only recently expanded because of the Civil War. But because Chicago was growing so quickly and because Chicago was on this transportation and communications network. It's basically this, the central place for the telegraph and the, it was the central place for the, tele, for the railroad in the nation at this point by 1871. And it's a central node on the telegraph thing. So, uh, and the telegraph is not only reaching all major places and a lot of minor ones by 1871, but as of 1866, it also reached across the Atlantic Ocean. So the news of the Chicago fire, because it's right on a, a news node, a major one, uh, is going out immediately while the city is burning. And while the city is burning all day Monday, there are rallies in cities all around the country, including like Faneuil Hall in Boston, and it, the, the story is front page news in the Monday morning papers and people around the country start sending aid to Chicago. It becomes kind of a, 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 a cause to do. And this issue of where Chicago is located on the network is very important because that same night, uh, there was a major 
rural fire in Peshtigo, Wisconsin, near where Green Bay is, which in which something like 1,500 people died, the largest loss of fire of life from a single fire in 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 in, in American history, uh, and it's this is a minor story with minor aid uh, compared to the Chicago story. Uh, it's front page news in the London papers by Tuesday and in Europe. Uh, also, as the city was burning, before he fled the city hall, the mayor sent for help and other cities in the region. I'm not, perhaps Toledo was one of them, but I know cities in, 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 in Ohio, in Indiana, in Wisconsin, and Illinois were putting fire engines and other equipment on trains and shipping to Chicago and arriving as early as 3 a.m., uh, as to say, six hours after the fire started with, with, with 24 hours more of the, of the fire to go in Chicago to help fight the fire. An extraordinary outpouring of effort. The aid ended up totaling somewhere between probably two and $300 million worth in uh, 2021 dollars. So it's really, uh, it, it's a very modern type response, you know, not dissimilar to what we would see if there was, uh, you know, like a major hurricane or something like that today. Well, I think, and not only, I think it's a, it's also a pioneering one. I think it's what could be called the first or just about the first instantaneous international news event, by which I mean an event where people far away hear of it virtually immediately, thanks to the telegraph, um, or now we would say thanks to television or the internet. Um, so, And also it's po very possible that people far away knew more of what was happening in Chicago than the people in Chicago, because of course they had no newspapers at that, this point and they're running for their lives fate would have it a tragedy like this occurs uh within a month of upcoming city elections mm -hmm. um to what extent does this fire uh end up becoming politicized and play a role in those elections well the fire is politicized even before those elections but they certainly it is certainly politicized in those elections. Chicago being was also not only a new city, but it's a city of people who don't know each other very well, most of whom have come a long way. And Chicago is socially as flammable as it was physically flammable. About 46% of the population is born in another country, not just have ancestors, but literally born in another country. One in five Chicagoans are born in Germany. Between one in seven and one in eight were born in Ireland at the time of the fire. And then smaller representations from Scandinavia and other and Bohemia, what we now call the Czech Republic, uh, at that time. And there's a and and ethnicity uh, and and class correlates not not one to one, but very extensively. So there's a, a strong division between a fairly wealthy Yankee, let's say uh, 
native born mostly from uh, uh, the middle Atlantic states and New England, as well as the old Northwest who've come to Chicago and made a lot of the money and own most of the wealth and this immigrant population who constitute most of the working people, skilled and unskilled in Chicago. And, but these people, the, the, work, the, the immigrants and their children who together make up probably between 70 and 80% of Chicagoans are, have close to 60% of the electorate. And so the city is very divided uh, politically uh, between these different kind of groups. And the fire raises a real panic in particularly in the in this Yankee elite who are very concerned of this, uh, what they view as an underclass rising up uh, and taking even greater control. And this elite wants to assert its control. So they get the mayor to a point as to establish basically an illegal martial law under General Philip Sheridan, the Civil War hero who is coincidentally living in Chicago where he's commanding troops that are basically fighting Indians uh, between the Mississippi and the Rocky Mountains. And he also appoints the, ma the mayor, all, they get the mayor also to appoint a small elite-run charity called the Chicago Relief and Aid Society to administer all this aid being sent to Chicago. So they control the money and they control the police for a while. And then in this election, which is already scheduled, Chicago elected a new mayor and common council every two years, it was scheduled for early November. Uh, they form what they call a fireproof party that will, of, of supposedly men of unquestionable probity who will take over the control of the city in this moment of crisis. And they do enlist, I might say, it's much more complicated than any kind of simple division, a number of immigrants, a number of working people, and uh, get a government elected under a man named Joseph Medill as their mayor to, uh, under a party they call, I think I said perhaps, the fireproof party that will make the city safe. Uh, but it is very pro uh, landlords and wealthy people and very discriminatory against poor working people, uh, particularly on one issue, uh, what they call fire limits. And what that is means it's, it's a kind of early code, uh, what, where you can build with what materials and what the fireproof people want to do is outlaw building with wood anywhere in the city to make it quote unquote fireproof. Um, and working people protest this. In Chicago, a, a fairly significant percentage of workers, probably close to 20% own their own homes and they can't afford to rebuild except with wood. And they think it, this is not it's necessary and it discriminates against them. And this turns into a very sharp opposition, including a, a melee at a common council meeting that visually uh, recalls the events on January 6th at the Capitol of a, basically a pitched battle 
where protesters take over the uh, the temporary city hall that's been set up after the fire. Meanwhile, in all of this, rebuilding very, very quickly. There was a moment of doubt, a moment of pause, uh, a, a, a kind of some jitters in the stock market, but remarkably quickly, Chicago starts rebuilding. I might add, uh, largely because of the need for speed and housing and winter is coming uh, with wood, because you got to do it quickly before any rules are in place. And people are still coming. Uh, there are more people in Chicago a year after the fire than before the fire. And Chicago has a half a million people by 1880, a million by 1890, by which point it's the second biggest city in the United States. Um, so uh, uh, there's, these, these two things do not um, cancel each other out. There is this division and conflict, but meanwhile, uh, the vitality of, 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 of Chicago persists in all this and the same things that built it in the first place, the things I described earlier, uh, demand that it be there and it gets rebuilt while all this is happening. Now, um, you're a Chicagoan, um, you know, spent a lot of time in the, in the city there. Uh, to what extent does the city still remember the fire? Um, you know, to what extent is this part of the city's identity today? Well, it's, it's, it's very strongly a part of the identity, but in, as you said at the outset, a kind of large and vague way that this thing happened and the Chicago flag has four stars in it, and one of them is for the fire. Uh, and there are various kinds of Phoenix emblems in various places. But basically the fire is officially remembered, uh, interestingly, as something to be celebrated as if Chicago was gonna have the fire. Chicago was big on booster, if Chicago, boosterism. If Chicago was gonna have the fire, damn it, it had the biggest fire of any place. But the lesson of the city's destruction is that the city was indestructible, that it rose, comma, phoenix-like, comma, from the ashes and rebuilt. And, and the fire was only proof of, how, of, of not that Chicago's weakness, but of Chicago's strength. And then this, this kicks in fairly early, uh, particularly with something that people may know from reading Devil in the White City or something else, the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893, which is basically to celebrate the complete re triumphant recovery of Chicago. And the great, one of the great emblems of that is the I will woman who represents Chicago, a kind of Amazon who's got the words I will, emblazoned on her breastplate and on her head is a crown in which the phoenix, the great bird of revival is nesting and about to take flight. So it's all about rebirth as a better, stronger, finer Chicago. Uh, and that's the, the, the story. It's, it, the, the story of division uh, is more or less forgotten. And uh, the one of 
of, of revival and strength and irrepressible vitality and spirit is the one that's remember that nothing can lick Chicago. It's also interesting to see in all this, the evolution of the mythology of Mrs. O'Leary, uh, who was blamed uh, for starting the fire, which is while the fire probably started in her barn, it was just a common fire that could have started anywhere. And the real reason Chicago burned was not because she set it on fire, was because it was so prone to such an accident. Any any kind of small fire could have had uh, that happens commonly every day in every city could have could have done the same thing. Um, but then she's sort of been embraced over the years as a kind of uh, folk hero uh, for making this whole drama possible. Uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, at, at the beginning, it, it's it's an emblem of how virulent and vicious was anti-Irish, anti-woman, anti-Catholic feeling. And now she's a kind of uh, positive folk hero. Uh, well, uh, Carl, this uh, was an excellent discussion and I really enjoyed your book. Uh, I was one of those people who just, uh, you know, all I knew was that a cow knocked over a lantern and you had a fire. Um, so this definitely brought this incident in, into so much more clarity. And we've kind of done a kind of a flyover of your book, but your book is filled with, um, you know, all kinds of uh, anecdotes and personal stories and, you know, testimony from the firefighters. Um, so it's, it's really wonderfully done. If someone well, thank wants, you. you're welcome. Uh, and if someone wants to learn more about this by picking up a copy of the book or learning more about your research, uh, where can they go? Well, you can go to any of the normal, uh, different sites like Amazon or wherever. Uh, but I urge people, particularly in this pandemic economy, to uh, patronize your local independent bookstore, um, and uh, if you can. And uh, but it's widely available anywhere. As is, I appreciate your compliments, it is meant to be above all a good read, an exciting story. Uh, it's carefully researched uh, and, and documented, and all that. But most of all, is meant and I hope it is an exciting and a gripping narrative. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. Take care and all your listeners uh, stay healthy. Hey, gang. Thank you for listening to another episode of Can't Make This Up. Uh, I hope you enjoyed hearing from Professor Carl Smith uh, talk about his book, Chicago's Great Fire. Uh, I know for me, like I mentioned in the interview, this was something that I hardly knew anything about. Uh, so reading his book and uh, hearing to him speak, it was very uh, illuminating uh, on this particular event. Uh, if you want to pick up a copy of Chicago's Great Fire, uh, I provided a link for you. It's in the description of this episode in your podcast app, and that will take you to IndieBound.org and put you in touch with your local bookseller. Uh, definitely a good read. I encourage you to check it out. It's a very human story. There is a lot of good primary accounts uh, of the Great Chicago Fire. Well, that is it for me today. Again, if you want to stay in touch, uh, check out the show's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at CMTU History. Uh, 
uh, I will see you back here uh, next week. Uh, in fact, uh, just finished a really good interview with uh, constitutional law uh, professor and scholar Michael Gerhardt. Uh, he wrote a very fascinating book about Abraham Lincoln, uh, trying to get into the character of the man. Uh, the book was Lincoln's Mentors, The Education of a Leader. Uh, and so I'll be back next week uh, with my conversation with uh, Mr. Gerhardt. So see you then. Discover more shows like this one at StraightUpStrange.com.